Hi, thank you for joining us again today on Talking Fit. Um, as usual, I'm Paul Rose, and as usual, I'm joined by Luke Morgan. Um, today, we are going to talk London Marathon. Um, obviously, this year's event was postponed from this weekend to October. Um, it's the first time in its 40-year <coughs> history, started in 1981, that um, it's going to be run as an autumn race has never been cancelled in that time. This year, I'm sure, will be no different. Uh, Luke and I have um, different experiences with the London Marathon. I've run it a few times. He's worked on it. He's helped a lot of clients um, prepare for it. <clears throat> and uh, so we thought a lot of people are probably feeling a bit gloomy at the moment, having probably feeling like they're missing out on their chance. Um, so we just wanted to share some of our memories and our good experiences with the race um, to just give people an idea of what they've got to look forward to, give them some, some hope, uh, some light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so to kick things off, Luke, obviously you have worked at the marathon, uh, what, four, five times now? Um, yeah, that's right. So um, it must have started for me about nine years ago. So whilst I was at university, we had the opportunity to... Um, help out we all needed we all needed um vital hours to pass our qualifications so um yeah i think the very first year it was with a charity so um as with muscular dystrophy and it's brilliant as a therapist because not only do you get to watch parts of the race and i mean we'll talk about it later the atmosphere is just phenomenal around there but seeing people come in after the event absolutely um elated with joy or people crying i've seen all sorts at, at the finish line just through people's real raw emotions um and the stories you get from these from these runners at the end is every single person has got a different reason why they've done it they've got different backgrounds yeah. it's yeah it's a very exciting event yeah i mean the london marathon um is famous not just as a marathon but it's the biggest single day fundraising event in the world, um, which does mean it attracts a lot of people who perhaps wouldn't normally consider themselves runners. They're doing it for all kinds of reasons, be it you know, ill, unwell family members, relatives who've passed away, uh, friends who've passed away, and just to, to help a cause that they, they really believe in, but perhaps aren't necessarily connected to it. Um, directly, as well as all the people who are who are there aiming for for a time, or just because they want to be able to say they run the London Marathon and be part of it. Um, so for me, uh, I'm probably in the, the latter end of that. Um, both times I have run it, I've run it twice, but both those times have been for charities. First time was Hope for Children, and the second time was Max. Um, MACS, they help children who are born either without eyes or with underdeveloped eyes. Um, wow. That was a condition I, I didn't even know existed until I came across them um, and decided, yeah, I want, to, I want to do the London Marathon again. And this seems like a really good cause. So I decided to run for them. Um, and yeah, like you say, there are so many different people, different walks of life with different stories that the fancy dress costumes <laughs> I, I remember the first time i did it which was 2016 
um, you're on the tube with thousands of runners all going to the same place. So they are absolutely packed and I'm squashed between the door and SpongeBob SquarePants, um, <laughs> which isn't something you're likely to experience uh, at any other time in life. Um, but I mean, if we kind of focus on your things again for a second, Luke, you were there massage mainly, I'm guessing. Um, yeah, that's right. So with the events, um, as I said, as part of the my university qualification, they pe- people need to be hands-on to practice. I can't remember the exact amount of hours, but it was in the region of hundreds of hours of hands-on practice. So when we all got the opportunity to work at these events, um, and I talked about muscular dystrophy, but I also worked with Macmillan uh, Cancer Support um, and Diabetes UK a, a few years later. So yeah, getting the opportunity to work with these as a training therapist, it was all about, right, let's get hands on and you're buzzing. And you're like, right, I want to I want to see as many people as possible. Obviously, it's free. It's an unpaid role. But at that time, you just want to get as hands-on. You want to make these people who have just busted their, <laughs> busted their butts off for the past few months and particularly the past few hours to achieve something. A lot of them, it would have been their first time. And for some of them, they, you know, it's just part of what they do. They are they're marathon runners. So, um yeah, when it comes to that opportunity, it's it's something you can't really pass up. Um, but yeah, some of the things I've seen over the years, I've I remember working on the first person. I think I can't remember the exact year, but the first person who walked down the stairs into this um, is a is a really nice government building, Macmillan we're using, and he walked in, and there were fifty therapists, and the whole place just opened up with applause. Cheers. Um, and this guy, I think he finished in like sub 240, something like that. And he just he came down the stairs, arms above his head. And by the time he got to the bottom stairs, it was just like tears pouring down his face. And he was just like, the I think he was just so completely overwhelmed from the whole situation. Um, I've seen people get proposed to on the stairs. I've seen, <laughs> You know, I think all sorts of things. That's a, a massive thing with the London Marathon, particularly. Um, I haven't done any other big city marathons, but I haven't done any other race where the support from locals is quite so big. There are businesses, restaurants, bars all over London where, as a finisher, you can go in with your medal. Um, that afternoon after you finish or in some cases for the next couple of days show them your medal and you'll get a free drink or a free meal um, I remember getting on the tube um, the first time I done it someone caught a glimpse of my medal and said oh here have my seat no. um, and it's you know you are looked at you, you strangers are just coming up wanting to shake your hand congratulate you because the runners in that race are heroes for a day um, they are, you know, they're, they're movie stars. They're, there is no one bigger in London on Marathon Day than the marathon runners. It doesn't matter whether they've finished in like two ten or or in eight thirty nine hours. Yeah, I've had people in at eight thirty nine hours as well, and they are just as happy as those who have finished. The difference yeah. is they're completely ruined and knackered. <laughs> 
whereas the guys who or the girls who have come top end you know the, the two and a half three hours they're in a very different situation but emotionally everybody is often yeah. very very uh, taken back by the whole event that's it um you know as you know i've done numerous marathons and ultra marathons and they drain you emotionally and you can be feeling quite emotional at the end of them and maybe a bit teary but when you're doing london it's so much more just because of the huge amount of support there are literally millions of people lining that course um screaming at you cheering you on um i was advised the first time i did it and i would pass this advice on to anyone have your name on the front and back of your top because it's such a huge boost hearing people shouting come on paul come on paul and and you know you feel like they are talking directly at you it feels like it's someone close to you cheering for you and pushing you on um in the way that it's not if it's come on number 27,362 and you're kind of looking at your vest and oh yeah that's me thanks cheers mate um <clears throat> and you're gone um and having these people cheering for you and supporting you all the way around and the noise does not stop it's the closest anyone will ever get to, to feeling like a, a professional footballer or something and walking out in front of tens of thousands of people every week um and it does it does have an impact on you emotionally big time. You finish it and both times I've done it, uh, I had two very different experiences in the London Marathon, but we can come to that later on. Um, you, you do feel incredibly emotional and like you say, people are bursting into tears and it's not because, well, not necessarily because they're happy or sad, it's just the sheer overwhelming emotion of the whole occasion it is beyond anything. Um, your experience on in a in a kind of sporting event if you like um yeah and uh, just going back to what you said having your name on the front and back i am um, i haven't done i haven't run london unfortunately as much as i'd like to i've never managed to get in um but when i ran bournemouth marathon in 2013 i did exactly what you just said i had my name in big print on the front and the back the charity I was running with, which was Macmillan at the time, they supplied you with the names. So that's usually a benefit. Um, one of the very small benefits of running with a charity is lots of other bigger ones. But yeah, having your name front and rear makes it so much easier. It's it's not just people. It almost feels like they're on your, in your team. It's almost as if like they're, they're waiting for you to come around. Um, yeah, it's... Yeah, I think if you're going to run with anything, run with your name on your top. I think you, you brought up an interesting point there about never managing to get in. Um, and I've, I've done it twice, which is two more than a lot of people get to do. Um, both those times have been charity places. Um, I've never got into the ballot. I've applied, I think it's seven times now and never got a place. Um, and I think as frustrating as it is, being so hard to get a place there that is also something that makes it so special because um, you've got the elites you've got the, the good for age runners who can get a place year in year out but for those people going through the ballot when you finally get a place 
and it's like this is it this is my moment finally i'm going to be one of those people running the london marathon that's got to be just make it so much more special because it's been so hard to get in um and even if you get in first time you know how fortunate you are to have got in first time you know it will probably be your only chance to do it unless you then go out and put in a a good for age time um or you go and get a charity place later on um and it just it will just enhance everything for you um knowing what a rare opportunity it is so looking at the course itself paul what would you say you've run it twice now where would you say your favorite part of that part of that race is um the thing that always stands out to me um and last year i was a spectator there and it was the first place i went because it sticks in my memory is cutty sark so it's about 10k in um so you are around about a quarter of the way through um so it feels like it takes you five minutes to get there. It'll, it doesn't matter how fast you run that 10K, it will feel like the fastest 10K of your life just because of the, the adrenaline and the nerves and the, the, the whole occasion of it. Um, but you get there and Kaki Sark is, it's almost like a bowl. So you're going around this, this kind of U-bend around the ship um, and then you've, you've got crowds packed all the way around and they're big crowds. It's a big, big, very popular, um, spectator spot. They'd normally have bands and things there as well. Um, and you, you go, you run in there and as you're approaching from a few hundred meters away, you'll notice the noise starting to increase. And then as you get there, the roof lifts off. Um, that's how it feels from a running perspective. Obviously, if you're spectating, that noise is constant for from the first runner to the last. Um, but you walk, you run around there, and the roof just comes off. It explodes with excitement, and and it does just it puts a spring in your step, and then you you go away, and it quietens down a bit. Um, I say quietens down. It's never quiet really in the London Marathon. Um, but yeah, that that moment when you're when you're there, that's a huge bit. Other bits, Tower Bridge, um, is probably one of the along with Cutty Sark is one of the really iconic spots of the London Marathon. That's always packed out as well, um, really noisy as well. Um, it doesn't hold the noise in quite the same way. The, the shape of the the, the bend and things around Cutty Sark mean that the noise really reverberates around there. Like an amphitheatre, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, um, Tower Bridge, as you run across there and you look up and you've got this old Victorian building and, and it's obviously one of London's big landmarks. And it's one of the few landmarks that you really notice when you're running. So you go past a lot of others, but you don't really notice them. Um, when you're running, but it's quite hard to miss Tower Bridge as you go under the, the towers. And it's, it's about halfway through. You, get, you come out the other side and you go past the half marathon mark. Um, and one thing I really remember from, particularly from the first time I ran there, you, 
you cross Tower Bridge and you turn right and you're on like a dual carriageway so you will turn right to go off towards ultimately towards um, Canary Wharf and then there'll be a divide in the middle of the road and on the other side of the divide there'll be runners coming back the other way um, so they're heading from Canary Wharf off towards Westminster and, and the Mall and ultimately the finish line. Um, so you turn right and I looked over the road and there was no one there and you think, okay, you must be doing all right. Um, and then you just kind of hear applause starting to ripple further down the road in front of me. Um, and you hear this, these, um, engines revving up and think, what on that? And the motorbikes shoot past on the other side of the road. Uh, and their camera crews, and then the, the race leader, I don't know who it was that particular year, the race leader came past the other way. And everyone running, and I mean, I did it in about three and a half hours, so these are good runners. Yeah. Are running time. along, applauding the race leader coming the other way. And you just, you don't get that in other events um you might overtake someone give them a pat on the back and just say come on mate keep it going but no one is taking the time to cheer and applaud for someone else running and this is hundreds of people doing that and it's just it, that was just a really really surreal uh but really memorable moment um and i guess from kind of your point of view you, you don't get to see the elites so much, do you? I suppose actually you probably do. Only on the telly. Only on the telly and the finish yeah. line. Um, yeah, and the, the strange thing with the London Marathon as well is the, the spectators aren't so interested in the, the elites. When I've been there spectating, um, the first time I ever went, which was 2006, 2007, uh, this is a long time ago now, um, I remember coming out at the embankment and there weren't many people around. We saw the wheelchairs come through and the leading ladies come through and it's just a ripple of applause. There aren't that many people on that part of the course at that time. But the majority of people supporting are looking for their friends and family and people in silly fancy dress. Um, they're not interested in the, the elites as much. Um, and that's... Um, it's just backwards to a lot of other big sporting events but it's, it's amazing it's interesting the biggest crowd cheers i've ever heard um other than the other than when um i think it was mo farah's first uh london marathon that was pretty loud everybody was cheering yeah. on for him but um, other than that i don't even remember when oh, david weir in in the um and the wheelchair yeah yeah in the wheelchair sometimes the noise from from him coming past is phenomenal yeah, the um, blind athletes as well. When you've got somebody yeah. running at such a high pace, but then full trust in the person next to them, yeah, that always gets a, always gets a very big cheer. Yeah, and I remember spectating last year, and I went to Cutty Sark first, and we saw the elites came through, <clears throat> and I stayed there for a while. Um, don't know how long, but a good amount of time after the elites came through, for a good half hour, forty minutes. Um, and you do, you see blind runners coming through at sub three hour pace and like that is fast. 
doing five, six minute miles. And like you say, putting complete trust in someone guiding them around. Um, and, and finding a guide that can also run that fast has got to be a, a task in itself because there, there aren't, you know, as a spectator watching the London Marathon, you may think there are a lot of sub three hour marathon runners just because of the amount you see that day, but there's few and far between to run a, a sub three, a sub two and a half. You they're coming, they're coming from all over the place, aren't they? Coming international yeah. to, to do this particular event. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the good for age time, so for anyone who doesn't know, good for age, um, if you can run a set time, which I think for males in my age category, um, which runs from 18 to 40, I believe, I think it's 3.08 you've got to run. Uh, to get good for age and good for age just means you've, you've automatically qualified so you don't need to go through the ballot I think there is still a, a good for age ballot but it, the chances of getting in are much 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 higher because it's just from people who have got that qualification standard um, oh, smaller pool isn't it yeah exactly. so if you if you can run that time and you apply chances are you're getting in um, and like you say, people from all over the world, they hit those times, they will want to go and run London if they can. It's like the only other one uh, that probably has the same kind of draw in that sense would be Boston, because you have to run a uh, good phrase to get a place at all. There is no public ballot in the Boston Marathon. Uh, everyone there is an elite level uh, runner at their age category. Um, well, yeah. In terms of, um, so they've been your best experiences. What have been your, what have been your worst experiences of? Um, well, the first one wasn't really a a bad experience. It was a bad moment that turned into a very memorable experience. So I remember the first time I did it in 2016. Um, and you might remember I'd been seeing you for sessions for a little while leading up to it because I'd had all kinds of knee problems. And That's right. I remember you saying yeah. you didn't think you were going to be able to no, start it. A month, six weeks before, I couldn't run a mile because it was just too painful. And I was flying when I actually got to race day um, up to about Canary Wharf, which I think is about 17, 18 miles in maybe 16, so somewhere around there. It's well over halfway. Um, I started to get pain in my knee and I was kind of, I put a strap on and adjusted it a bit and I was, I was getting through, but I wasn't comfortable. My pace slowed significantly. Um, and then by the time I got to embankment, I was in a lot of pain. So embankment is probably about 23, 22, 23 miles and you're really close to the end at that point. Um, and my quad started to cramp up, probably because I'd been limping slightly and my, my gait had been out. <clears throat> so I stopped and just grabbed the fence in the middle uh, to stretch my quad out. And as I lifted my foot up to pull it and stretch my quad, my hamstring then just contracted in a second and I got this immense cramp in my um, hamstring. And I kind of stumbled and put my foot down and started trying to stretch that a bit. And, 
almost fell on the floor. I was in so much pain. I think I was just holding on to the fence, standing still at that point. And then I just heard this screaming and uh, I looked over and this guy had climbed right up onto the fence um, on the side and was just shouting at me, you carry on, you're smashing it, mate, keep going, you can do this. And this wasn't a guy I knew, this is a complete stranger. And in that moment, you just, you're just like, okay, I've got to do this because this guy I've never met will never see again in my life. If I do ever see him again in my life, I won't know, he won't know. Um, it's telling me to, and it's just this, this crazy, surreal moment where in, in the space of a couple of seconds, I was thinking... You blew, didn't you? I'm, I'm, yeah, I went from, I might have to pull out here, I don't know if I can finish, or maybe I'll just walk to the end, to, no, you can do this, keep going because a stranger shouted some words at me. Um, my, my big low um, was uh, the second time I ran the London Marathon, so 2017, and I went into the marathon far, far better prepared than I had been the year before. I hadn't had any injury problems. Training had been spot on all the way through. Um, <clears throat> and then, we got to race day and I just felt a bit sluggish before I even got there, just felt a bit flat. Um, and I was like, okay, it'll be fine. It's just nerves. I haven't slept very well because you tend not to sleep that well the night before a big event like that. Um, and started running. And my first mile, I remember looking at my watch and thinking, oh, you're a couple of seconds out of your target pace because I was very much aiming for a time there and I trained some time and I knew I could do it. Um, so a few seconds out, they think that's the first mile, there's 25 to go, you can make up a few seconds. Um, and I think I did for a couple of miles and then it started to drop down again and I just couldn't get going, just didn't feel right in myself. Um, and I started thinking, okay, well, it's fine. It's not a problem. Um, I can see the paces from the next group back uh, ahead of me. So I'll just aim for them and eventually things will come good and I can just make up whatever time I can. Because you've got, you've got your ultimate target, but you've got, well, I'd take this. I'd be, be happy with this. Um, and as the time went on, I just couldn't keep up with them either. By the time I got to about 10 miles, I was thinking, I, I'm not going to do this. Like, this is game over. Um, and to have those kinds of thoughts, a third, just over a third of the way through a marathon, you've still got 16 miles to go, is a really, really long way and a really long time when, when you've essentially given up. Um, got to halfway was well outside what I needed to be running. Um, I think I was about almost 10 minutes slower than I had been. No, I was about five minutes slower than I had been the year before um, when I wasn't in anything like the shape I was going into this one. And I stopped because I thought I need the toilet. Uh, I pulled in, went to the toilet, and that was it. It was game over at that point because I just couldn't get myself going at all. And the second half of that race just went on forever and ever and ever. 
Um, my legs didn't want to work. Um, my brain had gone. Uh, I kept just stopping and walking with my hands on my head, um, just desperately trying not to burst into tears as I went. I remember at one point I stopped and was walking and some guy came up behind me and patted me on the back and he was like, oh, keep going, mate, you, you know, you're, you're ahead of me, so you're doing well. And that gave me a little boost for a minute and I kind of jogged on a little bit and I was back to walking and I just couldn't, couldn't get going at all. Um, by the time I finished the race, I crossed the line, was just, just didn't want to be there at all. Um, I remember they gave me my medal and they were like, are you okay? And it's like, yeah, fine, go and get your bag and stuff. And, uh, yeah, that, that had a huge impact on me for months afterwards. Um, That's brutal. I was just, yeah, ultimately it was one, it was just one of those days, but it just came at the worst possible time and at a really unexpected time because I prepared so well. Um, so what lessons would you say you learned from that and what have you done since to make sure that sort of thing doesn't happen again? I don't think there's anything you can do to make sure it doesn't happen again. Because there's always a chance you're going to have bad days. I did find out, you know, a few weeks, I want to say, later. Um, <clears throat> I saw a doctor uh, who prescribed me asthma medication and basically said, yeah, you, you've got asthma. Um, at that point, at the point of the race, I'd had asthma as a child, but I hadn't had, it for, hadn't had any issues with it. Leading up to the race, um, I'd had a bit of a cold and things and but seemed to have shaken it. But on the day, I remember breathing was a bit of an issue and yeah. things like that. So ultimately, it was something way beyond my control, but it, I didn't know that at the time. Um, it, it's strange because we've spoken a lot about the atmosphere and the way you've got so many people cheering you on and things, but that race, I just felt completely alone. It was like, it was just me trying to slog out this impossible task, just surrounded by black. And I remember crossing the line and seeing people and they're congratulating me. And I'm just thinking, why are you congratulating me? That was, that was awful. Um, I was almost half an hour slower than my target. Um, yeah. And, yeah, that stuck with me for a long, long time. Um, I, I did say at that point, I'm never doing a marathon again. I think I did say, I'm not sure I'm ever going to run again. I've done marathons and ultras since. I haven't done any on the no. road since. Uh, everything I've done, since, I don't think I've done a road race at all since then. It's all been on trails, but that's not because of that. That's just because um, I found... I have much more of a passion for trail running and obstacle racing rather than road running. And um, uh, I mean, trying to take the positives out of that, it sounds like, like, despite the fact that it sounds like a very difficult experience, you found out you're asthmatic. Yeah, yeah. So I assume you were on medication, and by controlling that, you were able to. I, even now, you're yeah, probably much more aware of your body and you know what to do to make sure that you've got your breathing in sync. Yeah, exactly. And 
and beyond that, I think mentally I'm much more tuned in now as well. Um, I'm much stronger mentally than than I was back then because um, it did have a huge negative impact on me. And I've had good days and bad days in events since then. And bad days, I don't think I've had a bad day to that extent, but I'm much better now at just going, okay, it was a bad day, time to move on. Um, I certainly haven't had a bad day in an event as big as that. If I ever get to do London again, then that will be a real test. If I go and have a bad day there again, how will it affect me? But um, you can't you can't avoid something just on the off chance that it might not go exactly how you want it to. You've still got to got to get back on the horse and give it a go. Yeah. Just quickly, um, we mentioned earlier in terms of what I've experienced there. I haven't run it. I have worked there with charities, uh, I think four or five times. But something I've had a real joy over the past two or three years, four years in fact, um, is working with people prior to it. Yeah. Um, in fact, two years ago, I started writing marathon training plans for people as well. Um, and the first thing I did straight away from an experience that I struggled with at Bournemouth Marathon was whenever I... I decided that whenever I write a plan for somebody, I will write it in time rather than in distance. Yeah. So whenever I get them to do, if it's a three running, sorry, three runs a week training plan, I'll get them to do a 30 minute run, maybe a slightly longer run, and then an even bigger run. But it will always be in time. Mm. And the reason I did that was partially because of motivation levels that I've had and I I know having speaking to a lot of other people, they also get. Um, so I'm just going to expand on that slightly. So if you're having a bad day and you know you've got to run 10 miles, that 10 miles could be significantly more taxing on your body than if you're having a good day. Whereas if I tell you, okay, I'd like to run for an hour and 20 minutes today. If you're feeling like a bit sluggish, maybe not right in the zone. As long as you're running for an hour and 20, you've hit today's target. Yeah. And if you're, if you're feeling super quick, then even better, you've achieved more distance. Yeah. And I've done that for, I want to say about eight or nine people, just plans alone for the past two years. And other than one person who picked up an injury by doing a half marathon about four weeks before the event, Everybody, everybody's just adjusted the way they train now. They, those for those people, it worked really well for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the plans I follow are all time-based um, for for the reasons you were talking about. And the other thing is, um, I always measure effort in RPE. <clears throat> so, for anyone listening who doesn't know what RPE is, it's rate of perceived exertion. So you're basically using a scale of one to ten for your effort. So if you're doing an easy long run, they would be at about four, four or five out of 10, um, which is a kind of pace where you should be able to maintain the conversation. Um, probably a bit slower than what you would do on the actual marathon day, but on the actual marathon day, you're not gonna be getting up and training again the next morning either. Um, yeah. But again, the, the reason for that is the same as what you're just saying. You could be having a really bad day and you're 
four or five out of 10 is significantly slower than normal, but you're still working at that four or five out of 10. So it's still working your body in the same way. Whereas if you base it on a pace, you'll go- Or even, or even heart rate as well, Paul. Yeah. Heart rate's so variable. Yeah. If somebody's got early signs of a cold or- Yeah, yeah. had a couple of drinks, haven't yeah. slept very well. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Rate of perceived exertion. And so make, you know, a scale of one to 10, how are you feeling? How hard is it? And running to time, I think from an enjoyment perspective, that's the way to do it. Yeah. If you are a racer and you've got to hit certain times, you know, you maybe are better off looking at a distance plan. But for anybody who, especially running this year with the later date, um, you've still got time in your hands now. I'd say now is the time to switch to a time-related plan. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and the other thing I'd say is for people running it this year, <clears throat> autumn in terms of racing um, is probably a better time than spring. Um, I mean, it was 24 degrees or something um, a couple of years ago. Um, it wasn't as hot as that last year, but it was pretty hot. It's been hot at the moment recently. If you've been putting in miles since January when it was cold and wet, and it's only the last month or so where it's, it's suddenly warmed up, that's a big jump for your body. It's much, much easier to get used to putting in miles in the heat during July, August, and then having the temperature drop down a bit um a race that you know worst case scenario you start running with a, a jumper on as well make it an old jumper that you're quite happy to take off and just chuck by the side of the road and never see again um because so yeah so for for, for a lot of people they'll probably find they achieve more with the autumn date than they perhaps felt they could have done with the spring date um and you get to line up with a suntan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Instead of having pasty white photos, uh, you can turn up brown and, well, depends how long got, um, lockdown goes on for, I suppose, but potentially turn up olive skinned and. Uh, ready to go. Ready for your best uh, pictures, yeah. Uh, on that note, uh, seems like a, a good place to leave it, I think. Yeah, um, I think so. Uh, well, where can people find you, find out more about what you're doing? Um, so I am on Facebook. I am Zen Anatomy Sports Therapy. Um, that's, my, that's my company name. That's not me. My name's not Zen. Um, <laughs> on Instagram, I'm Zen underscore anatomy. Um, and they're pretty much the two social medias that I use. If you're looking to connect with me on LinkedIn from a professional standpoint, then again, it's Luke Morgan. Um, It'd be really good to talk to people who are looking to, who are either running or would like to run the London Marathon in the future. Because from a sports therapy perspective, sports therapy perspective, that's where most of my um, most of my work and progress can be made for people. I imagine uh, not just the London Marathon, but any oh any any running event, yeah, any any sport, any any endurance event, yeah. Cool, Uh, and I am. Paul Rose PT, stick that in on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, but I don't really use Twitter. 
uh, and like Luke said as well, actually LinkedIn, uh, just Paul Rose. Um, yeah, find me there. Give me any questions uh, about endurance, running, uh, strength training for these kind of events as well. Do a lot of that. Um, so yeah, that's us. So thank you very much for joining us today. I uh, hope you, you enjoyed this kind of special ad hoc episode. We didn't really plan to do this until very recently. Uh, we will be back with another talking fit uh, a bit later on this week. Thanks very much. Goodbye. Cheers, guys. Thanks a lot.